What's up, guys? Welcome back to the MMA Meeting. Let's talk with the Weasel Podcast, where we talk all things MMA. And I hope you guys are having an amazing day. Now, there's been a lot that has been going on. I'm going to quickly go over two of my predictions for this weekend's UFC card. For the main event, Derek Lewis versus Alexei Olenek. I think Olenek can absolutely win this fight. Take it to the ground. If it gets to the ground, he's absolutely going to dominate Derek Lewis. But as long as he stays on the feet, he's probably going to get knocked out. It's a fight of polar opposite styles. And whoever is able to dictate their game plan first is going to win this fight. Alexei Olenek is an extremely experienced fighter. A bit wild on the feet, but for sure, he knows he has to drag this to the ground as soon as the ref signals the fight low single leg pull guard whatever he has to do as long as he gets it to the ground he's going to win the fight so if he plays it smart i will have to say alexa olenek is going to win this fight and i'm going to go with him by a first or second round submission the thing about Derek lewis is he always proves me wrong because that power factor is always there i tend to go with the more skilled fighter or the one who has a path of least resistance and Derek Lewis's takedown defense has been a bit of a liability. He's very strong, and he might be able to fight off the takedown from Alexei Olenek and land some big right hand. If he does that, he's absolutely going to win the fight. And as for the co-main event, Chris Weidman is going to be fighting Omari Akhmadov, a huge step down in competition for Chris Weidman. If you guys don't know, Chris Weidman has fought top five, not just top ten, top five fighters in his last nine years. Ever since his fight with Damian Maya. He has only fought top five fighters. Amari Akhmadov is ranked number 11. This is a bit of a step down in competition to his usual opposition. And this is it for him. If he loses this one, it's one of the biggest falls from graces we have ever seen in the UFC. From what people thought was going to be a dominant middleweight champion, even though he kind of was, to now can't even get a win. Even against the number 11 ranked contender, who has been in the UFC forever as well. He's a veteran in the game. He has never really had that big win. Omari Akhmadov is a very skilled fighter, but he's never had that huge win that propelled him into like the top 7. He has a big right overhand. He's very sneaky. He's very well-rounded as well. Good wrestling. Very strong in the clinch. Good kicks as well. But Wyman should be able to win here. His chin is not the same. He could not take punches nearly the same since he lost to Luke Rockle. Or since he lost to Yoel Romero. Whatever contributed to him taking this deep dive in his career so my prediction for this fight i'm gonna go with omari akhmadov he is currently on a six undefeated streak he has not lost since 2016 in the middleweight division the guy is undefeated in the ufc he has never lost a fight in the middleweight division in the ufc and he's looking really good as of late great wins over ian heinish he had a draw against marvin vittori who a lot of people are really high on beat abdul razak al hassan in the welterweight division defeated tim bosch zach cummings and with the decline of Chris Wyman, I think Omar Akhmadov is going to be able to catch him with that big right overhand. Even if he's losing the fight, I think eventually he's going to be able to catch Weidman. And now in fight news, Yair Rodriguez pulled out of his fight against Zabit Magomedsharipov for the August 29 card. That fight was the headliner. Zabit was going to fight five rounds against Yair Rodriguez. But now, I don't know if they're going to find a replacement. Or they're just going to take Zabit off the card and have Anthony Smith versus Alexander Rakic as the new main event. I have a feeling they're going to have a replacement. Because Kelvin Cater came out and said, you know, I want to fight Zabit again. He'll take it on short notice. And that is a fight a lot of the fans want to see. But I also want to see him fight Max Holloway, to be honest. Because that fight has been a fight that I've been contemplating about. You know, just thinking about for years now. Ever since Zabit burst onto the scene, I named him as, you know, the prospect of the featherweight division. I've always wanted to see how he fought Max Holloway in a five-round fight. And I believe Alexander Volkanovsky does want to take some time off. It does leave for the division to play out a bit, and he's going to see how the division turns out and who is going to be the established number one contender because we do have Korean Zombie versus Brian Ortega, which the UFC does want to put on. I don't think they're going to take one of those fighters and put him up against Zabit. So Kelvin Cater rematch or Max Holloway. Those are the only likely fights for Zabit. But to be honest, the Kelvin Cater fight doesn't do anything for Zabit. I think Zabit would take it because he wants to fight, and he's already in training camp. But it really does nothing for him. It doesn't put him anywhere different than where he is right now. Because he was in a spot against Yair Rodriguez where he possibly could have got a title shot. If he dominantly or put on a great performance against Yair. But if he fights Kelvin Cater, the winner of KZ versus Brian Ortega is going to get a title shot over him. 100%. Which is why Zabit and his team should be calling out for Max Holloway. That's what they should be doing. The Cater and Zabit fight is great too. But the thing is, I want to see Zabit for five rounds. Is he correct that he can go five rounds pretty well? Because he says it, right? He says his cardio is not as bad as people say. Even I think his training partners or his trainers also say that Zabit can go five rounds. We'll see, man. If he can go five rounds, if he can in fact do that, which I have my doubts about, 
I don't see Kelvin Cater beating him. And the fight with Max Holloway would be very competitive. And I hope they don't do the thing they did last time where they made Zabit beat the main event, but he fought for three rounds. It's a short notice fight. They might do it again. Who knows? Or they might put him down to the co-main event and have Smith Rock Hitch as the main event. I hope they don't do anything like that. Because as we know, Zabit is one of the most skilled fighters in the UFC, especially in that division. He has some glaring holes. His liking defense, as well as his cardio deficiency, are his biggest holes in his game. And if he could fix up those two things, man, it's going to be very hard to see anybody beat this guy. But that's a lot to ask. I mean, we're going from a guy who can fight two rounds very well to being a five-round fighter. That's a huge jump. Even when he paces himself, like in his last fight against Kelvin Cater, and even his Jeremy Stevens fight, I mean, the guy didn't push the pace that hard. He went at a very comfortable pace and was still gassing out in the third round. In other fight news, we have a fight that's actually getting put together. Robert Whitaker is going to be fighting Jarek Hennanier. And this has to be for the next title shot, right? Winner of this fights the winner of Izzy versus Costa and is a super dangerous fight. On one hand, we have Whitaker making a very quick turnaround. He just fought Darren Till, got dropped in the fight, but I don't think it's enough to really hurt him. Come into a quick fight with Jared Kennanier. And Kennanier has been out for a while. Kennanier suffered a chest injury or something. Well, I really wonder how he's going to perform after coming through surgery. They were supposed to fight before, and now I hope it happens. We know that Whitaker does pull out of fights a lot, and he was the one that pulled out of their fight. So I hope this time it gets put together. If it doesn't, he has lost his shot and he might have to fight another time, while Kennanier might just get the next title shot. How does it play out? Well, to be honest, I do think Jared Kennedy would win. If Robert Whitaker fights the way he's been fighting against Adesanya and Darren Till, this reckless, blitzing, looping punch, overhand focus style, he's going to get countered, man. He's going to run into a brick wall. Because Kennedy is an amazing counterpuncher. He's very powerful. I think top two powerful guys in this division. I think the only guy that probably gets harder than him is Yoel Romero. He's literally brought down heavyweight power into the middleweight division. That's crazy. Every time he touches someone, they either shake up or panic. It's very weird to see from leg kicks to body strikes to head strikes. Everything shakes his opponent up. He injured Anderson Silva with an inside leg kick. He destroyed Hermanson's lead leg with round kicks. Every time he's touched someone with his hands, they have crumbled. He also has a longer reach than Robert Whitaker. So if he's fighting this way, this reckless style, because he's fighting these Guys who focus on range, he might get reckless again because Kennanier is also long as well. I could see him blitzing down and getting caught right down the center with a straight punch. And even though we know Whitaker can wrestle, what happened to Jack Hermanson when he shot in for a takedown? He met an uppercut that finished him off, right? He shot in for that double leg. Kennanier gauged it very well, fired an uppercut, and ended the fight from there. That's how sharp he is. And that is why I do think Jared Kennanier is probably going to win their fight. If Robert Whitaker fights a little bit more intelligently, not putting himself in danger so much, he might be able to pull off this win, right? Hopefully, it's going to be a five-round fight. I don't know if it's going to be under pay-per-view or it's going to be a headliner of a fight night card or whatever, but he needs to start using those stutter steps. He needs to start using the redirectional movements, set up for the high kicks, use his jab a lot better, fight like how he fought Jacare Souza and Yuval Romero the first time, not how he fought Izzy and Darren Till. Right, I don't know what happened to that Whitaker. Right, ever since his second Yoel Romero fight, he's been so different. And the reason might be because of the damage he sustained in that Yoel Romero fight. Who knows, man? Maybe his leg is not the same, so he's not as confident in doing the same stuff he used to do. Right, because it did require a lot better footwork and a lot more redirections. He wasn't this straightforward, blitzing, looping punch guy that we see now. So for him, I do hope that he changes up a bit and doesn't fight the same way. But for Jared Kanir, he probably hopes, hey, run at me, man. That's the thing I would love to see you do. But this is what I really wanted to talk about. Now, first disclaimer, we have to see Habib versus Justin Gage because that is a real dangerous fight for Habib, a guy who could stuff his takedowns, a guy who can outstrike him. Who knows how this is going to go down? We also know that Justin Gaethje is the best wrestler Habib has ever been across the cage against. I mean, who was the last great wrestler that Habib fought? Maybe Ally Quinta was probably the best. April Trujillo back in the day. So there's a big gap in wrestling credentials when you go from Ally Quinta to Justin Gaethje. But the cage work, again, like I talked about before, you don't learn that in wrestling. You don't learn that in amateur wrestling. So it's going to be a whole new thing for Justin Gaethje. I do hear people say that Yo, Justin Gaethje has incredible takedown defense. Well, we don't actually know that. Even though how credentialed he is in wrestling, and he was a defensive-styled wrestler when he competed in college, nobody shoots on the guy. So we don't actually know how great his takedown defense actually is. 
The only guy that was really shooting gun was Eddie Alvarez. And Alvarez actually got him down. I know he stunned him a bit before he did it, but he did get Gaethje to the ground very briefly. Other than that, there has been no good wrestler with a focus to shoot on. So it is a bit of an unknown commodity when it comes to Justin Gaethje's uh, takedown defense game. We don't actually know how great he is at stuffing takedowns, especially with the style Habib. I mean, it's almost like a 0-100 to kind of thing for Justin Gaethje in MMA. He never fights guys who take him down, and he's fighting that guy who's only going to look to take him down and has sneaky striking and amazing striking defense as well. I believe Habib, it's only a number. Stats don't mean everything. They could be convoluted. Habib, I believe, does have the best striking defensive rate in the lightweight division. And look at the guys he stood up with, right? He stood up with Conor McGregor for the whole third round. Even in the second round, stood up a bunch with Conor McGregor. Michael Johnson, the entire half of the first round was stand-up. Edson Barbosi stood up pretty good with, but is wrestling threat is, of course, another component to his striking defense. Some fighters are worried to commit with their strikes at him because he's always ready to take him to the ground, go under the punches, catch the kicks, and drag him down. So that is a very unknown thing coming into this fight as well. For some people that point out that Justin Gaethje has amazing takedown defense, there isn't that great of evidence to point to that. But the GSP thing. So, so Dana White giving the green light that Habib can fight GSP. So Dana White giving the green light that Habib can fight GSP in his next fight if it is indeed a retirement fight. That is amazing. As a fan... That is a breath of fresh air. I hope they stick to it. I hope Dana sticks to that because I do know, like I made a video about it, Conor McGregor's out there. And Dana keeps talking about it. He keeps saying that Conor versus Habib is a fight that they want to do. He keeps saying that Conor wants to fight Habib, whatever that means. Everybody wants to fight Habib. But uh, we all know he's the cash cow. We all know that Conor brings in the numbers. And that is the fight they want to see because it is the biggest fight in UFC history. Habib versus GSP, though is one of the biggest fights in UFC history as well. If Jorge Masvidal versus Nate Diaz could do 1.3 million pay-per-view buys, if Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje could do 700,000 pay-per-view buys in this climate, Habib versus GSP can get probably close to 2 million. I may be a little bit generous in that. GSP on his own, without this whole pandemic thing, draws in from 700 to like close to 900,000 pay-per-view buys on his own. Habib is a big star as well, where people are going to buy his fights. I still don't know what he drew against Dustin Poirier, but the fact that he got so much money out of that fight probably shows he sold a lot. Probably maybe around the 800000 mark. Because we do know that Jorge versus Nate did draw more than Habib versus Dustin Poirier. As I believe Dana White said that that fight was the biggest pay-per-view draw since Habib versus Conor McGregor. Knowing that Habib versus GSP is a big money fight. Maybe not as big as Habib versus Conor McGregor in this climate. Which I believe would do close to probably 3 million buys. It's still a big fight and it's a fight that Habib wants. It's a fight that GSP wants. It's a fight that Habib's father wants. It's a fight that the fans want. It's a fight that the hardcore would exit out the stream and actually buy the paper. No, I'm just kidding. But that is a fight that all the fans want to see. And it would be to determine who is the greatest of all time for sure. If Habib is Justin Gaethje, he has an opportunity to become the greatest fighter of all time. There are going to be some people that still think that John Jones is it, even when they look over the PED stuff. Some people might still think that GSP is the greatest of all time, even losing to Habib. But there's going to be a lot of people knowing that Habib goes 30-0, knowing that he just defeated GSP. And most likely the way he would do it is by out grappling him, which is something no one has done to GSP ever since he fought Matt Hughes the first time forever ago. It would be very hard to say that Habib is not the greatest of all time. And if he's able to dominate both Gaethje and GSP for every single round, just like Erhawani said, but it would be even more so, the most dominant athlete in combat sports history. I don't know much about other sports, maybe of all sports. A guy that has only lost one round in his entire 30 professional fights against the absolute best fighters there are? That is a stat not even Floyd Mayweather could come close to, right? Floyd Mayweather has controversial wins. Habib only has one controversial win in the Gleason T-Bow fight, but they still gave every round to him. Floyd Mayweather has fights where there are people that thought he lost. There are fights that people thought should have been a draw. There are fights where he got rocked. There are fights where he lost nearly half the rounds. And I understand that boxing has 12 rounds compared to 5 rounds for MMA. But still, it's a crazy stat. Even for five rounds, only losing one round ever is an historic achievement. That is going to be extremely hard to replicate. And I'm not going to lie, man. If I see Habib not only I'll grapple GSP, but ragdoll him, hold him down, ground and pound him, all this stuff, it would be one of the most awe-feeling moments I've ever had in my last 14 years of watching the sport. The last time I had that big awe-feeling 
was when Chris Weidman knocked out Anderson. That was the last time I was like, wow. I didn't even know what to say. I was speechless. If Habib holds down GSP and does what he wants to him, that feeling for me would be magnified. I know a lot of people, when Robert Whitaker got knocked out by Israel Adesanya and some other fights happened recently, you know, that was an awing moment as well. But to see GSP, who I've been watching forever as the greatest fighter of all time, and to see Habib hold the guy down, a lot of the newer fans probably don't understand how crazy that is, how crazy it would be to see that. For the newer fans of the sport, newer fans on my channel, I really recommend just watching GSP's fights. Maybe you won't feel the same kind of thing, you know, watching it live throughout GSP's dominance, but just going from the Matt Serra rematch, watching from that on, and then going to the Habib fight and seeing GSP get held down, it would be crazy, man. But GSP outstriking Habib and able to take him down and hold him down probably won't feel the same way because I do see GSP as the greatest fighter of all time. I do think he would beat Habib and he's a bigger fighter. And Habib has struggled in the wrestling before when he fought Glayson Tebow. He even got taken down by Abel Trujillo, not held down that much, but he was in his guard for a bit of time. So it won't be as crazy to see GSP do it to Habib, but if GSP is able to do that, that will set him apart from everybody. I don't even think John Jones with the PED would compare to GSP at that point. I think he just completely separates from everybody if he's able to defeat Habib. Man, when DC was talking about this, DC was talking about how Habib is going to hold down GSP. He was telling Errol Hawani, it's not if Habib is going to take down and hold down GSP. It's when he's going to do it. And when he said that, I never thought about that. I never thought maybe Habib can actually dominate GSP on the ground. This is an actual possibility in the fight. I know there are a lot of fans that are hoping Habib beats Justin Gaethje just to see the Habib versus GSP fight. Because if he loses to Justin, GSP doesn't want to fight Habib. The only reason why he wants to fight him is to take away that O, take away his undefeated record, and get another accomplishment for his legacy. If Justin Gaethje goes and defeats Habib, GSP is probably never going to come back. And there are also fans that want to see Justin Gaethje defeat Habib because of the Mayweather effect. The guy's undefeated. Some people just want to see him lose. Some people probably don't like his personality or some of the stuff he says. Who knows? But there are definitely fans, I've seen them, that want to see Justin Gaethje Habib. They are a cynical bunch. <laughs> they don't want to see the GSP fight. I can't wait, man. My early prediction for that fight, I have GSP winning. I'm not so worried about his layoff because it's a shorter layoff than when he fought Michael Bisping. He came into the fight with Michael Bisping off a four-year layoff and looked the way he looked at a higher weight class while also having colitis. My uncle had colitis, and it's really bad, man. I don't know how severe GSP's was, but the fact that he was able to compete in a high-level professional fight while having colitis is, is an accomplishment in its own. You suffer such severe pains. I don't even know how he did it. I don't know how he fought so well against Michael Bisping while being ill, higher weight class, four-year layoff. That's unheard of. I've never seen any fighter in any sport able to do it like that. Not even Muhammad Ali. When Muhammad Ali came back off of his three-year suspension or whatever, he didn't look the same. He wasn't as flashy with his footwork. He wasn't as elusive. He wasn't the same Muhammad Ali. The only thing about GSP was he looked just a little bit slow. And I think it was because of the added on weight. He's never fought that heavy before. He looked bigger than Bisping, which is crazy to think about that he can fight at 155, or at least he says so. And his coach said he can do it. And at this climate of the UFC where everybody's big, he would actually be a 155er, which is crazy to think about, right? When you look at Kevin Lee, for an example, Kevin Lee and GSP are roughly the same size. I'll actually say that Kevin Lee's a little bit wider and he looks a little bit bigger because of how wide he is and how long his arms are. They're about the same height. And if he can make 155, I do think GSP could probably make 155. So my early prediction, I do think GSP is going to win. I won't be too shocked if Habib wins the fight. I will be shocked if he dominates the fight. But I do see GSP, you know, having the better striking, having great wrestling, being what, the top three? best wrestlers in MMA history, having one of the highest fight IQs, having great Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, great off his back as well. I could see him squeaking out a decision against Habib. Landing a lot of jabs, landing a lot of long-range strikes, defending some takedowns, even if he gets taken to the ground, attempting some submissions, landing strikes off his back, trying to get back up, and also be the more athletic fighter. It's going to be tough for Habib to do what he really likes to do. So, I do see GSP winning three rounds out of the five against Habib Nurmagomedov and establish himself as even more, you know, the greatest of all time. And I recently just watched a Stipe Miocic versus DC2 fight. Just to go over it, there's a lot to take away from it. So we do know that Stipe Miocic can find that answer, that body shot. And it wasn't Stipe Miocic that originally found it. It was actually John Jones who found that weakness of DC. That left hook to the body was something that Jones was landing on DC as well. Because DC lifts his arms up against taller fighters, right? And he wants to hand fight. Look how hard it was for Stipe to use his hands toward the head of DC, throw punches at his head, because DC was constantly hand fighting with, he was constantly putting his hands forward, and he's stuffing the punches from getting through, because they're bouncing off the arms of DC, and bouncing off his hands, 
the impact is so much less. So the body shots get opened up because he's lifting his arms up when he's doing this. He's five foot ten, right? He has to lift his arms really high up, exposing his body. And that left hook is an amazing tool, man. You could fake the jab, gets his right hand to extend a little bit more forward and higher, and then you just circle with the left hook to the body. That's what Stipe started to do. Found the pivot punch that eventually ended the fight. And that pivot cross from Stipe wasn't just for the knockoff. He let it in the second round, like three minutes and five seconds into that second round and rang DC's bell a little bit. DC had to take steps back. And that is something he never does. He never took a step back other than when he got hurt. And how did he land the pivot cross? DC does that same thing, man. DC has a pattern to him that only Stipe and John Jones took advantage of. And maybe Josh Barnett with the left high kick. He's actually the one that found the left high kick. Jones just perfected it. Just how Jones found the body hook, but Stipe perfected it. DC has his pattern about him. He likes to lift his hands forward against longer fighters, grab their hands, and because of his speed advantage, he flicks jabs and stuff and left hooks at them very quickly before they can even see it. And he also has an opportunity to go for the single leg off of that stance. But what he also does is, he likes to lean to the right, which is where he eats a left high kick. He likes to lean to his right a bit and throw a left hook, almost like what Ronda Rousey used to do back in the day to get the initial clinch, right? She likes to wing out that left hook. If it misses, she has her arm around you. So from there, she can start working for trips. DC does this so he can start dirty boxing with you because he's absolutely one of the best fighters in the sport when it comes to dirty boxing. He tried this a lot against Stipe Miocic, knowing that he was catching Stipe a lot with those uppercuts in the clinch. And occasionally, Stipe found that pivot cross right down the center. Straight punches beat looping punches. And that is something I guarantee Stipe is going to use a little bit more in the trilogy. He didn't have a chance to use it that much in the first fight. In the second fight, he used it a couple times. I think in the third fight, he has figured out the pattern of DC a little bit more. Knows now he can go with the left hook to the body even early in the fight. Take the gas out of DC early in the fight. Even if DC's trying to pace himself like he said he's going to do a little bit more. Like he said he's going to wrestle a little bit more. And take out the energy out of Stipe Miocic. The pivot cross whenever DC starts leaning to his right and throwing the left hook is going to come in handy. And the knees to the body. He doesn't have to go with the left hook to the body. He could go with a left knee to the body while hand fighting with DC. Because this masks it a little bit more. It could be a bit hazardous if he gets his knee caught, right? Miocic's hand fight with DC on top, gets DC to expose his body, grabs onto his wrist, and throws the left knee to the liver. He could do stuff like that as well. And he has to address the leg kick. Because he did not check them that well, and DC was constantly going to them, especially early in the fight. He has to start checking kicks, if not throw more leg kicks of his own. Maybe not too much, because DC's going to look to catch him and wrestle with him, which he said he's going to do in this fight. He said he's going to wrestle a little bit more. And I believe it is a smaller cage, which is 100% going to benefit fit Daniel Cormier. It's going to give him a huge advantage. Makes it easier for him to wrestle and easier for him to land his strikes. Steep is the longer guy. He needs more room in the cage to work. It's very unfortunate too, man, but you have to say it. Stipe's corner is going to have to say something to the ref or they're actually going to have to train Stipe to defend the eye poke. It's a real thing. It's not like, oh, it happens a couple times. No, it happens too often. It's almost like a technique of its own that Stipe has to defend now, which is very unfortunate. Look at that second round. Look at three minutes and 14 seconds of that second round. Look at the thumb jamming eye poke. That right there was so bad because he punched with it. He didn't just flick his fingers out like in the first fight. He punched with his hand and his thumb got in his eye. That's bad. That's really bad. He punched with an eye poke. And what happened right after that? DC stunned Stipe with a 1-2 or a right hand against the cage. Hurt Stipe a little bit and Stipe had to retaliate because the ref didn't do anything. That right there, 100% can be a point deduction. At least I think it should be. If you're punching someone with an eye poke, that is worse than just flicking your fingers out or something like that. That's way worse. That 100% impacts the fight. And 100% had to have impacted Stipe's game. And that wasn't the only eye poke either. I mean, this is really bad. Really bad. And I hope... The commentators pointed out a little bit more because it did seem like in that rematch, the commentators were a little bit biased for DC. I understand they're friends with him. You know, Joe Rogan and Dominic Cruz, John Anik, all those guys over there are very good friends with DC. And I understand where they're going to be a little bit biased. It's hard to be completely unbiased. It really is, especially when your friend is fighting out there with a big opportunity on their hands. And now it's his retirement fight. I think Joe Rogan is going to commentate because it's going to be in the apex. It might be a little bit biased again. I hope they're not that biased. If DC pokes Stipe again... They gotta address it as well. Because it's very hard to watch when it seems like everybody's against Stipe Miocic. It makes you want to root for him a little bit more because of how much disrespect the guy gets in general, right? Maybe not purposely, but he just does. A lot of people disrespect him. Ever since the Francis Ngannou thing. Ever since that, a lot of people from different angles kept disrespecting him indirectly. And if the ref and the commentators and everybody besides the fans are not going to address the eye poke. It leaves a huge question in this entire thing, man. Because I do believe it's very important for commentators to not be biased. 
I understand they don't impact the fight per se, but they do impact the narrative of the fight. A lot of casual fans, when they watch fights, they eat up everything the commentators tell them. Whether them being right, whether them being wrong, the casual fans really like to repeat what the commentators say. And that is why you never hear anybody, besides the hardcore fans, bring up the eye pokes and how damaging they actually are, how impactful they actually are. We've seen eye pokes stop fights before. Stipe is just that tough, he doesn't give up, right? He's just going to fight through, no matter what the ref says, no matter what anybody says, he wants to win. At the end of the day, he just wants to win. Even if they cut his leg off, he's going to try to win the fight. So, because you don't see the the reaction of, you know, Stipe falling over to the ground and holding his face and stuff, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt him. It hurts him just as bad as anybody else. He just handles it a lot better. And if DC pokes him in the eye, because of the history he has with it, they need to deduct a point. It needs to be enforced in this fight. It's too important of a fight. All fights are important. But this specifically is too important for illegal strikes to be credited. You gotta take points away. You gotta warn DC in the back. You gotta warn DC, hey man, you've poked this guy before. He had to get surgery because of your eye pokes. If you poke him in the eye, I'm gonna deduct a point. That is the sort of thing he has to do. I understand there are accidents sometimes, but he has to really stop punching with his fingers and flickering his fingers out and getting Stipe's eye. My predictions for that card is gonna come out next week, early next week, because it is, in general, a very good card. That's the main event. The co-main event is Junior Santos versus Jairzinho Rosenstrike. That's a really interesting fight. I really wonder how Rosenstrike is going to come back off that devastating knockout from Francis Ngannou. The striking in this one is going to be very powerful, man. But I have a feeling JDS might wrestle a little bit more. Who knows? Magomed Ankalaya versus Ian Kutilaba, the rematch. Everybody wants to see the ending to that fight. Everybody wants to see how that fight was going to play out. They are both so dangerous, so powerful. At any given moment, they can end the other guy. And the fight was getting very fun. They stopped the fight when Kutilaba was pretending to be hurt. And he didn't even look that out of it either. I mean, he was punching back, yet they still stopped the fight. Which is weird. He was not only punching back, but winging his punches to knock out Ankalaev. If someone's doing that, they're clearly not out of the fight. And it did seem pretty obvious he was just pretending. Regardless, that's an amazing fight stylistically as well. Very explosive. Sean O'Malley's coming back. Sean O'Malley's making that quick turn to uh, fight Marlon Vera, Chito Vera. People really doubt Sean O'Malley. I understand why he's the new kid on the block and he has his personality that some of the, you know, more old school fans don't really gravitate towards. But he's not rushed, right? I understand he's fighting a Cody Garbrandt or something right now. Then, yeah, you could probably say he's biting a little bit more than he could chew. But he's fighting Chito Vera, which I believe he should be heavily favored to win. I think Chito Vera's a very good fighter. But he's a little bit too defensive. If you let Sean O'Malley work, he's going to catch you. You got to bring the fight to him. Not overextend yourself and get yourself countered. But smart pressure, smart aggression, active volume. That is the sort of thing that's going to get to Sean O'Malley. Especially work in the wrestling. I don't think Chito Vera is going to get Sean O'Malley to the ground. He's going to be a striking match most likely. They're both really good on the ground. Even if it gets down there, I don't think one is so much better than the other. But I think O'Malley's a much better striker than Chito Vera. Much better. As well as being more powerful. Faster, longer, taller, more athletic, and way more creative. I don't think O'Malley is going to starch him the way he starts some other guys, but I see him taking over the fight. John Dotson versus Marab Dvalishvili is actually a really good fight as well. That's a guy that a lot of people want to see fight Sean O'Malley. Marab, that would be a very hard fight for O'Malley. Wait, is that it? Is that the card? It's only five fights? The card's next week. Wow. I do have a hot take though. Here's my hot take for UFC 252. If DC defeats Stipe Miocic... He is not the greatest heavyweight of all time. It seems like a lot of people do agree, but there are a lot of people who don't agree as well. I think it's a really easy argument to make, to be honest. His resume is just not that strong. Outside of his Stipe Miocic wins, if we give him his win for UFC 252, right? The Derek Lewis fight is a pretty good win, but outside of that, nothing that strong when you compare it to Stipe Miocic and Fedor Emelianenko's competition, right? You look at the Strike Force guys, which is like the next good wins for DC. That was a long time ago when you defeat Bigfoot Silva and Josh Barnett. But if you include Josh Barnett and Bigfoot Silva, if you want to include Frank Mir and Roy Nelson, I'm sorry, man, but Stipe's gotten beat pretty badly. The competition's not even close at that point. Now, when you talk about the greatest heavyweight of all time, you do not include DC's light heavyweight career. It's only heavyweight. When you talk about GOAT, greatest of all time, then you include everything DC has done. But when we're talking about just heavyweight, you do not include the light heavyweight part, right? You go Derek Lewis, Roy Nelson, Frank Mir, Josh Barnett, and Bigfoot Silva. Everybody else is not a notable name. You compare that to Francis Ngannou, JDS, Alistair Overeem, Fabrice Overdoom, Andrei Arlovsky, and yes, you include Andrei Arlovsky because if you're including Roy Nelson and you're including Frank Mir, 
and you're including Josh Barnett and Bigfoot Silva, you got to include Arlovsky, who's probably even better than all those guys when you talk about a notable win. You know, he knocked out Roy Nelson before. He's had really good wins compared to those guys, and he was a heavyweight champion as well. You include Mark Hunt on Stipe Miocic's record. He also defeated Roy Nelson, if you want to give him that. I mean, the level of competition is not even close. The only thing that really gives DC a lot of credit are the Stipe wins and the Derek Lewis win. Outside of those three wins, there's nothing that even comes close. When you talk about Stipe Miocic defeating Francis Ngannou, who's better than pretty much everybody else DC has beaten besides Stipe, I understand he lost to Derek Lewis, but that was a very weird fight where both guys didn't do anything. Them rematching, I'm pretty sure most of us would believe that Francis Ngannou would win that fight, right? JDS, better than everybody else DC has beaten. Alistair Overeem, better than everybody else DC has beaten. Fabrizio Verdum, way better than everybody else DC has beaten. Andre Arlovsky, might even be better than everybody else DC has beaten outside Derek Lewis. And Mark Hunt, same thing. And then he did defeat Roy Nelson as well. Like, the competition is not even close when you talk about every great fighter that they have beaten. And you also do have to know that Stipe did defeat DC as well, which just adds on to it. Now, some people will say that Alistair Overeem, JDS, were not in their prime as well as Andre Arlovsky, of course. I don't, I don't even know if you can say Andre Arlovsky wasn't in his prime because he was on that streak before that loss. People say JDS and Alistair Overeem were not in their prime. JDS for sure was not in his prime, but he was still a big threat. He made his way to a title shot. Alistair Overeem, people say that he wasn't in his prime, but he had his greatest wins in his entire professional MMA career at that point. The economical Overeem, the one who's not Overeem, actually did better than Ubrahim, right? Actually performed and competed and beat better fighters than Ubrahim did. You can actually make an argument that the Overeem that Stipe beat may have been the best Overeem we've ever seen. Just looking at how he was performing. And then we look at Fabrizio Verdum. Fabrizio Verdum was in his prime, 100%. He was the best Verdum we've ever seen. He just won the belt against Cain Velasquez. He got put out with one shot. That's just what it was. And you also have to note that Stipe Miocic knocked out almost all of his competition in the first round, which is something a lot of heavyweight champions did not do. And you also do have to know that Stipe Miocic has the record of title defenses in the heavyweight division with three. He ties Fedor Emelianenko in all-time MMA, which is a huge achievement in itself. The fact that nobody else is able to do it outside of Fedor and Stipe. But then we look at Fedor Emelianenko's resume. The competition isn't the strongest thing about Fedor. It's more of the dominance and how long he's been doing it. The crazy win streak he went on at the golden age of Pride FC. But even the competition compares to DC a bit. Of course, Estipe wins are better than any two wins from Fedor's entire career. I would actually have to say that Big Nog wins are very close. And the Mirko Krokop win is also very close, given the era, right? Fedor is from a very old era. His prime was in like 2005, 2007, where DC's prime is around now, you know, 2019, 18, 17, 12 to 10 years later. So the era is different, but you have to do it like that. Or you're just going to say every new fighter is the greatest of all time. You can never have Fedor as the greatest of all time. Big Nog and Mirko Krokop at that day were the best heavyweights on the planet. Besides Fedor Emelianenko, Fedor accomplished and established himself as the greatest heavyweight on the planet when he defeated those guys. He beat Big Nog twice. He beat Mirko Krokop. He beat Mark Hunt. He did defeat Hanato Sobral, Kevin Randleman, and he did defeat Tim Sylvia and Andralovsky, who again do compare to DC's competition outside the Stipe Miocic wins. So the competition is very, very close when you talk about Fedor compared to DC. So that alone, I do believe, discredits DC as the greatest of all time if he defeats Stipe again. And I do know that DC had a great win streak at heavyweight. His only loss was a Stipe Miocic, which is a great thing as well. Stipe lost to Stefan Struve way back in the day. And that does go to DC's credit. But competition beaten is such a big factor when you talk about greatest fighters of all time. It's the backbone, the foundation to every other accomplishment that you can give to the greatest of all time. When you talk about win streaks and performances and all this stuff, everything relies on how good the competition was. Everything. Because you can do all that stuff, go on this crazy win streak and beat B-level competition for 10 years. You know, you can do that and that won't come close to beating three years of high-level competition. Now, that's one side of the argument. Here's the other part of this. To be consistent, if you believe DC beating Stipe twice makes him the greatest of all time, then you have to believe that Chris Wyman is greater than Anderson Silva. Max Holloway is greater than Jose Aldo. Davis and Figueiredo is greater than Joseph Benavides. Rose Namajunas is greater than Ioannion Jacek. Chuck Liddell is greater than Randy Couture. Alistair Overeem is greater than Fabricio Verdum. And BJ Penn is a greater welterweight than Matt Hughes. You have to believe all of those to be consistent with this, right? All those guys have beaten the other twice, with or without them losing to them. 
and I don't agree with most of them. You could probably say Wyman is greater than Silva because of the PED issue. I do not think Holloway is greater than Jose Aldo. I don't think Figueroa is greater than Benavidez when you talk about their legacy, right? Benavidez has a lot of great wins at 125 that people seem to look over, whereas Figueroa has like three, right? He's barely been competing in the UFC. Benavidez has a long stretch 125 career that Figueroa does not have in the UFC. Rose Namajunas is definitely not a greater strawweight than Ioana Janjacek. Ioana is the greatest strawweight of all time. You can say Chuck Liddell is greater than Randy Couture in the light heavyweight division. And Overeem is definitely not greater than Fabrizio Verdum in the heavyweight division. Fabrizio Verdum is definitely top 5, arguably top 4, some will even say top 3 greatest heavyweights of all time. And here's the thing, if you actually do believe that, you know, Wyman's greater than Silva, just because they beat them twice, not looking at their overall legacy, there are some people that do actually go by this, that's actually MMA math though, right? If you believe one guy's greater than the other because he beat them, beat them twice, once, three times, whatever, that is exactly what MMA math is. Because whoever beats that guy is now the greatest of all time in the same argument. So it's a very fun discussion. I love going through these uh, GOAT debates and who's the greatest and all this stuff. It's really fun. I personally do think Stipe Miocic is the greatest heavyweight of all time with or without winning a UFC 252. Now what happens after is going to predicate a lot of it. It's going to really show where Stipe is at as the greatest heavyweight of all time. If if he goes and loses the DC next Saturday, right? Let's say he loses like three, four times in a row after that. Then he's probably not the greatest heavyweight of all time. DC's retiring after this. This is it. There's nothing left for him. So his career will be set in stone after this fight. Nothing will be added. Nothing will be removed. I think Steep is the greatest of all time. I think Fedor is second. I say DC is third. I put Fabrizio Verdum as four. And number five, it gets tricky. Some will say Alistair Overeem, some will say Cain Velasquez, some will even say Francis Ngannou, given how much stronger his competition were than Cain Velasquez's and JDS's and stuff. Overeem, I believe, has stronger competition than Francis Ngannou overall, but he's lost a lot, so that goes against him. I personally say it's either Ngannou or Overeem. And now let's go right to the questions. If you guys want to ask me any questions, you can go to my community tab under my YouTube page where I post questions for podcasts like every Monday or so, Sunday or something. You can reply your questions under there with the most liked comments getting read first. First question goes to Joe D. Who do you think is a tough match over Hamza Shemaev? Pretty much anybody who can defend his takedowns and outstrike him for the most part or pulls a very dangerous grappling game such as a Gilbert Burns, right? Gilbert Burns will probably be the toughest fight for him because of the fact he won't be able to strike too much with him. Taking him down is a very risky thing. Burns also has good takedown defense in general. Good wrestlers as well. Kamar Usman, Colby Covington, those are going to be very hard fights for him. Maybe a Jorge Masvidal as well, being so much better in the striking area. But the fact that a lot of fighters in the top 10 are probably going to have a hard time with him says a lot about Hamza Shemaev, to be honest, because Leon Edwards and maybe a Steven Thompson, those guys might lose to Shemaev. It's early to say so, but the style that Shemaev comes out there with, that might prove to be so. Do you see Whitaker reclaiming the title, or does Izzy have him figure it out? I think Izzy has him figure it out. As long as Whitaker fights the way he's been fighting, that weird, super aggressive blitzing style with looping overhands and stuff, that Whitaker is going to lose to Izzy every single time. He's going to lose to maybe Jarek Hananir as well. Like, that is too risky of a style to fight a guy like Izzy. But if Paulo Costa defeats Adesanya, Whitaker does have a path to victory there. Or if he just completely changes his style to how he used to fight when he fought Jacare Souza, when he fought Yuval Merrill the first time, his movement was a lot trickier. He was a lot of stutter steps, redirections, set up for high kicks and stuff. I mean, he was fighting so smart back in the day. And then GSP versus Habib prediction, I have GSP by a slight decision. Then we go to, I got the first question. Might have to change that name now. Who wins these very interesting matchups? Paulo Costa versus Thiago Santos at 205. That's a very explosive fight, man. I think Santos is faster. I think he hits harder than Paulo Costa. But Costa has better volume. And I believe he has better cardio for the pace he puts on. He's going to put on a hard pace against Santos. Santos might sink before Costa does. But Costa does put himself in harm's way. And putting himself in harm's way against a guy like Santos is too dangerous, man. One shot and Costa might go down for good. But Santos' kicks are not going to have the same kind of effect moving backwards so heavily, right? It's not just like how we fought John Jones getting pressured a little bit. Paulo Costa is going to make him run backwards, right? It's going to be a very fast pace against him. 
it just all comes can the wild quick counter punches from Santos get to Paulo Costa that's the biggest question there Santos might be able to catch Costa eventually but I think Costa would smother Santos and completely negate all of his attacks Yoel Romero at 230 pounds versus Brock Lesnar at 265 pounds I'll probably say Yoel Romero right it's gonna be hard to get him to the ground it's gonna be very hard to hold him down and they are nowhere near comparable in striking I mean Yoel Romero is a way better striker way more dangerous extremely quick way faster than Brock Lesnar and he deals with the shots a lot better Brock Lesnar when he gets hit or strikes get thrown at him he seems to have a very not amateur but like more of an inexperienced reaction to strikes like he turns his head away looks away puts his hands forward and stuff and that is something you do not want to do with a guy as fast as you all Romero and as unorthodox as he is right so I'll go through all Romero I think he's going to be able to attempt and land some of those wild shots on Brock Lesnar and not be too worried on the feet with the guy as well as you know, being a higher credential wrestler, very athletic as well, it might be hard for Lesnar to take him down and hold him down, right? I think Romero may be a little bit too slippery, a little bit too quick to transition out of those like Cain Velasquez was. TRT Sahudo versus Habib. I gotta go with Habib. Nate Diaz versus Holloway at 155 for five rounds. I'll say Holloway, he's a bit better of a striker overall. His kick's gonna be a huge factor in that fight, even though he's greatly underreached, I guess you could say. Nate Diaz having like a seven-inch reach advantage over him and also can go with him five rounds. Very difficult boxing for Holloway to get through, but the kicks are gonna answer a lot. Also, Nate Diaz won't be able to take down Holloway, I believe. So, I think Holloway would edge him out in a decision. Daniel Cormier versus Dominic Reyes at 205. That's a very interesting fight, but I do have Dominic Reyes winning. Again, Cormier has these patterns to him. Reyes is a southpaw fighter, and he has a really good left high kick. Right? If he can trick Cormier into leaning his head a certain way and go for the left high kick, that could be a huge knockout for Dominic Reyes. Also, his boxing's way better. He's very good in the pocket, way better than John Jones in the pocket, way better than Gustafson in the pocket, and long range, Cormier doesn't want anything to do with that. His takedown defense is also very nice when he's expecting it. So I do think Dominic Reyes might even finish Cormier late or get a decision win. These questions are kind of scattered out with likes, so I gotta scroll. Um, maybe won't be in perfect order, but we're gonna go with Hot X here. Who would you say has the best cardio in each division? And who would you say is the physically strongest in each division? Okay, the heavyweight division. Best cardio in the heavyweight division is probably Stephen Miocic. He goes five rounds pretty well, even at a fast pace. Elsa Overeem has good cardio too. Physically strongest would be Francis Ngannou. Light heavyweight, I think both are John Jones. I think John Jones has the best cardio and he's the physically strongest guy in this division. When he gets a hold of you, man, that grip of his is crazy. It's really hard to get out of his grip, but Dominic Reyes was able to. Some other guys are able to as well, but I think overall nobody can put on the same kind of physical strength that John Jones can. Middleweight division, the best cardio might be Israel Adesanya. I think Jack Hermanson has good cardio and physically strongest is either Yoel Romero or Paulo Costa. I would have to say probably Yoel Romero given his wrestling background. And then the welterweight division, I mean, we got kings of cardio here. I'll say Colby Covington might have the best cardio, a little bit better than Kamar Usman possibly. And physically strongest might be Kamar Usman. Whenever he gets a hold of someone, man, they just cannot get out of it. I haven't seen anybody really stop his onslaught of takedowns. I haven't seen it yet. Lightweight division, best cardio is Tony Ferguson. Physically strongest, I'll actually have to say, is Kevin Lee. Khabib is right there, but as everybody points out, Khabib is a lot better with his technique, which is why it's harder to get out from under him rather than his strength. Even though he's very strong, for the first two rounds, Kevin Lee might be the absolute strongest guy. The way he was able to hold down Tony Ferguson so well was kind of impressive. Whenever he gets someone to the ground, he usually tends to control them a lot easier due to his strength. Even in the clinch, he's very, very strong. But then when you look at Habib, he tends to have a harder time getting them to the ground and holding them down in that first round. It usually takes him a little bit of time to get the hang of the opponent knowing when to shoot and feeling them out before he completely dominates them. His strength lasts though, which is something that doesn't happen for Kevin Lee. Kevin Lee's strength diminishes very quickly after that second round, whereas Habib keeps it for five rounds. And then featherweight, I think the best cardio is Max Holloway. It looks like he can go 10 rounds easily. And strongest, I'll say either Josh Emmett or Jeremy Stevens. It's one of them two. Bantamweight division, best cardio is Dominic Cruz. I think Petro Jan, I think Cody Garbrandt also have very good cardio to go five rounds easily. But the fact that Dominic Cruz has done it so consistently and always looks great for five rounds, I would have to put him at the top. And physically strongest, I would have to say it's either Marlon Moraes or Jose Aldo. 
before these two get tired, it's hard for anybody to handle them. Nobody takes them to the ground. Nobody holds them down, especially. Even in the clinch, they just cannot keep a hold of them. I'll have to say one of them too. Maybe Josie Aldo due to his size in this division. Flyweight division. Best cardio might be Joseph Benavides and physically strongest is Davis Figueredo. Women's bantamweight. Best cardio might be Holly Holm and physically strongest is Amanda Nunes. Flyweight division, both might be Valentina Shevchenko, to be honest. And women's strawweight division, best cardio I'll say is Joanna Janjacek, and physically strongest is Jessica Andraj. Then we go to Tony Solomon. Do some of the older guys like Yoel Cruz, Frankie, or Woodley still have a path to the title? Some of them. Yoel Romero, the fact that he's finding Uriah Hall and not some high-ranked contender might tell us it's over, right? He's had like three title fights in his last five fights which is kind of crazy, so he's had a lot of chances, he's lost all of them, missed weight for one of them, you know, Yoel Romero's title chase was not too good, it, was, it didn't live that well, even though he was competitive with every champion he's fought, I think his path is done, given that no matter who wins that belt, they have already beaten Yoel Romero. Dominic Cruz's is not done, he's only lost to Henry Cejudo, right? I mean, he lost to Cody Garbrandt a while ago, but that Henry Sudo loss was his last loss, if he has two, three wins from here, he can get a title shot 100%, Right, he hasn't fought that much. As long as we known this guy as the best bantamweight on the planet and stuff, you know, he's been champion for a long time, he hasn't really fought that much. Right, he still hasn't proven himself compared to other champions in other divisions yet. So he definitely has a point to prove still. And, you know, getting two, three good wins, he's right there back at a title shot. Hopefully for him, defeating a high-ranked fighter such as, you know, maybe a Corey Sanhagen in the future or Aljamain Sterling after he gets a title shot. Whatever happens there, Mullen Morice, you know, if he defeats one of those guys, he's right there for a title shot and anybody in this division would want to fight him, right? He's one of the biggest names in the division, so that really gives him a lot of opportunities here. Frankie Edgar, yeah, he, he has a chance at 135. He definitely does. He's fighting Pedro Munoz. I'll say one or two more wins after Pedro Munoz and he could get a title shot as well. Just like Dominic Cruz, anybody would take that fight. He's another name that's been around for a very long time. Tyron Woodley, um, maybe like 10 more wins in a row given how, how much the organization loves him. To be honest, I don't think he gets a title shot in the future anymore. I think his chase to the title is pretty much done from here. Even, to be honest, even if he gets like two, three wins, good wins, I don't even know if they'll give him a title shot. I really don't know. Then we go to Narisman 5 or V. Hey Weasel, how do you see these matchups playing out? Number one, Izzy versus the top 10 light heavyweights. Okay, number 10 is Nikita Krylov. I think he destroys Krylov. I don't think Krylov has anything for him. Alexander Rakic, I think he defeats him in a kickboxing bout. Just better overall. Rakic is pretty reckless at times. So Volkan Uzmir, I think he destroys Volkan Uzmir. Volkan may be able to pressure him against the cage and may find some of those looping hooks get into the dirty boxing exchange, and maybe find some success there, but the long range is going to be way too hard for him. He's probably going to fall into a lot of things. I think Adesanya may be just a little bit too much for him. Yuri Prochaska, none of that stuff is going to work on Adesanya. None of that funk, none of that crazy, unorthodox stuff is going to work on a guy like Adesanya. I think he tries to fake and clown around, but he is only going to leave himself open to Adesanya and get sniped from a distance. I think Anthony Smith gets torn apart. I think Glover Teixeira gets torn apart. He's not going to gas out like Anthony Smith did. And he's a way better striker, way more lethal. Probably better takedown defense as well. Long, tall. And we know Adesanya could go up to 205 and be powerful. We've seen that in kickboxing. I think Corey Anderson gets beat. He's a tough guy. He's going to attempt a lot of takedowns, a lot of volume. But because of his pressure, he might leave himself a little bit open against the counter-striking of Adesanya. And I think his takedowns are all going to fail. Jan Blahovic. That's an interesting one. That's going to be a tough fight for Adesanya, or should I say it's a dangerous fight, right? Jan has crazy power that he's really confident in these days. He wasn't confident in it like three years ago, but all of a sudden, he's finding it. He's found his stride. He's found his prime form. Finally, right? Finally, he's always been a top 10 guy, and that left hook of his is so powerful, man. His hands are so powerful. His body kicks are so nice. Really well-timed leg kicks as well. This will be a kickboxing bout where Jan will attempt a few takedowns just to mix up a little bit. But I just don't think it's enough to best a guy like Adesanya. Maybe he could pressure Adesanya and make him fall into a left hook or something. But I think Jan's inactive style will just leave Adesanya to pick up on points. Snipe him from a distance. Make him a bit desperate. Kind of like how he was against Santos. Got knocked out for it. He was fighting very well against Santos. But he got a little bit frustrated with how the fight was playing out. Santos wasn't exploding the same way he used to. And Jan just all of a sudden 
blitzed them and ran into a counter shot, got knocked out for it. I think the same thing will happen with Adesanya. Now, how does Izzy fight Dominic Reyes? That's a very good fight. Reyes is, of course, bigger. Same height and stuff, but more massive. Has more power than he does. Very good sniper as well, but he's fighting probably the best of snipers in the UFC. He's a southpaw fighter who only really fights southpaw. Adesanya is a switch stance fighter, which is really going to take away that left hand that Dominic Reyes is very focused with. That left kick as well. And the redirecting of Reyes is going to be very much understood by Adesanya. Adesanya is going to understand how he's going to move. Once he sees it like three times in the fight, I think he's going to complete download that. And have a clear feeling of how Reyes is moving in the octagon. The first two rounds are going to be very tricky and dangerous for Adesanya. But because of his fight IQ and because he knows how to pace himself, fight slow or fast... And understand the movement and tracking the footwork of Reyes. I think he's be able to pick at Reyes a little bit. I don't see a knockout. I see this going to a decision. I see Adesanya picking his way to like a three or four round win against Reyes. But I will say Reyes may be. He might be the hardest fight for Adesanya and may actually beat him. Or it's John Jones. How does Izzy fight John Jones? Well, I think Adesanya would beat John Jones. He's a far better striker. Same height. Close reach, right? Four inches apart. Way better with the kicks. Way better with the punches. Can be very active with Jones. Jones can be very active with the striking. And Adesanya can stay at the same pace that John Jones puts on him. Right? He's going to be the counter striker. But it depends what Jones does. If Jones starts not committing as much with the strikes with his kicks. Or the oblique kicks and side kicks and stuff. Adesanya might have to turn into an offensive fighter. And that's where it's going to be extremely interesting how that's going to play out. Because I know he has the best ability to get around that reach. Out of anybody Jones has ever fought. He's much faster than John Jones. He might be more athletic. His footwork is way ahead of Jones. His understanding of movement is way ahead of Jones as well. And it all comes down to the counter takedowns of John Jones. When he gets into that clinch or even shoots for the double leg, is Adesanya's takedown defense in the center of the cage enough to stop John Jones' takedowns? If it is, Adesanya is going to win this fight 100%. If he stops the takedowns of Jones, I believe it'll actually be an even easier fight than him fighting Dominic Reyes. And that's the other thing. In the clinch, Adesanya is very good, man. He's very experienced there. Really good strikes, good balance, as John Jones is as well. John Jones is amazing in the clinch. That's where the competitive fight really plays out. How is it going to happen in the clinch? But all in all, I think Adesanya will be able to win the decision. But that's why I see stuffing takedowns, landing strikes, being the better striker, more fluid and sharper. That same defense that Jones uses on everybody is not going to be used as efficient against Adesanya, right? If he could just get past that one defensive tendency from John Jones, Jones is a lot more open, man. And I think it would surprise a lot of people. Number two, Jared Kennanier versus Robert Whitaker. I think Kennanier defeats Whitaker by TKO, counters the blitz. Whitaker runs into a big shot, and Kennanier's way too sharp. Number three, Garbrandt versus Davis and Figueroa, 125 and 135. Well, we don't know how Figueroa competes at 135, how powerful he would be if his cardio changes at all, and vice versa with Cody Garbrandt. So, who would just win a fight between them two? I think Davis and Figueroa would win because all he needs is to hit Garbrandt once. And either Garbrandt's out cold or he goes into war mode. So no matter what, even if Figueroa's getting touched up a bit because of his chin, he's going to be able to take shots from Garbrandt. If he just lands a simple long-range jab, and I believe he does have a reach advantage, or at least he fights very long, he punches a lot longer than Garbrandt does, so he's going to seem longer than Garbrandt. If he just lands a stiff jab, that might be enough to put Garbrandt in war mode and get himself knocked out. So I'll say Davis Figueredo, he just needs to land one punch. Dustin Poirier versus Tony Ferguson. That would be a very good fight. That's a fight we want to see, right? A fight that would, on paper, label the next title contender against whoever wins it, Khabib versus Justin Gaethje, right? But we have GSP and Conor McGregor out there, so it wouldn't happen right away, right? So Dustin Poirier has better boxing, of course. He has better fundamentals overall. He's very good off his back. Better takedowns than Tony Ferguson, at least that's what we know of. Tony never really attempts takedowns. But Tony's very unorthodox. It's very hard to know... If Tony's ever going to win or lose a fight, given that he fights so weird every single time, he changes his strategy, completely fights differently, given the style he's up against. I guess that Dustin Poirier, I would have to believe that Tony Ferguson would be a bit aggressive and not allow Dustin Poirier to let off his output and his volume striking, especially those combinations where he goes to the body, to the head, and moves forward on you. But Dustin Poirier dealt very well against Justin Gage, who did that sort of thing. The thing about Justin Gaethje, though, is he has a short reach and he punches short, which means every single time he went after Dustin Poirier, he went into Dustin Poirier's range, while Ferguson won't necessarily have to do that. Ferguson's going to have like a, what, four-inch reach advantage over him? But the thing about Ferguson is, just like when he fought Justin Gaethje, he put himself into Gaethje's range every single time he attacked and got countered for it. 
because he would punch too long, commit too much, his body follows behind the punch, and then he drops his hand and exposes his chin and gets cracked. Dustin Poirier isn't necessarily an amazing counterpuncher. He's a good counterpuncher. He will go for it, but he's a lot better as an offensive combination puncher. Will he be able to do that sort of thing against Tony Ferguson? I really don't know. And also the thing is, Dustin Poirier doesn't have as good of a chin as Justin Gaethje. So a big shot from Ferguson, like that uppercut that Gaethje ate in the second round. I don't know if Dustin Poirier will be able to take it. And if he does, I don't know if he'll be able to recover from it. So I do think Tony Ferguson might win at the end of the day, but he will take some damage. And how much damage is enough for Tony Ferguson to complete change as a fighter? That will be a very sad day, to be honest. And it might be closer than we think. Number 5, Masvidal versus Colby Covington. I think Colby wins. I think he does what Usman kind of did, but with more output, more pressure. Gets Masvidal to be more defensive in the fight. Kind of how he was against Usman, as well as some moments against Nate Diaz. When you pressure him with a lot of volume, Masvidal turns into a very defensive fighter where he doesn't really focus on offense. And that still seems to be a part of his game. Colby will be able to put that onto Masvidal, show that better than anybody else. So I think Colby will win the decision. Number six, Reyes versus DC at 205. Again, I think Reyes would probably win. I've been watching your videos regularly. Really good. Keep it up. Thank you, brother. No, thank you so much for the question, man. Then we go to Johnny. Do you think the era of having long reigning champions is over? Possibly due to the emphasis on double champ status and increased competition. Yeah, I think you hit it right. Double champ status, everybody wants to move up divisions and fight champions. And the fact that the competitions now are more active and fighters are just getting at the champions even more frequently than ever before. There's more competition for champions and because there's more competition for champions, there's more ways for them losing. Back in the day, Josie Aldo, Anderson Silva, I think John Jones, GSP, Cain Velasquez, Dominic Cruz, these guys fought at most twice a year. A lot of times we saw one fight a year. Even though now we see champions fighting twice a year, but I have a feeling some of them are going to fight three times a year, which is very, very rare compared to the long reigning champions of the past. So because of all that, we probably won't have too many long reigning champions because of that we're not going to have an era of long reigning champions. But we will have champions who will be long reign, right? When we look at that day, John Jones, Anderson Silva, GSP, Josie Aldo, Dominic Cruz, these guys were long reigning champions and that was almost every single champion. I think Cain Velasquez and Frankie were the only ones that weren't that long and the rest set records for how long they stayed as champions, you know? But let's look at every champion right now. Who would be a long reigning champion? Well, Steep is the longest reigning champion in, in heavyweight history, right? Even though he just won the belt. But after this fight, I think he will retire pretty soon, maybe one or two fights after. So I don't see him being long reign. John Jones is a long reigning champion. Adesanya might be. Adesanya absolutely might be a long-reigning champion. He seems to be in there for the long haul. He seems to be, you know, relatively young for MMA. Even though he's like, what, 32 years old, 31? He seems very young for the sport. He seems like he's going to be around for a very, very long time. And if he could beat Paulo Costa and Jared Kananir, I don't think anybody beats this guy. Like, I think it's just a matter of time before we see, in that next seven-year mark, some new young talent fight Adesanya for the belt. Kind of like how Anderson Silva fought Chris Wyman. That sort of thing. But he's also thinking about moving up to uh, 205. So who knows if he's going to stay as a long-reigning champion. 185. Kamal Usman might be a long-reigning champion. Gilbert Burns is his toughest fight. I think Santiago Ponzinibbio is a very tough fight for him. If he beats those two guys, I don't think anybody beats him. He has an extremely dominant style, man. It's hard to beat him. It's hard to just get rounds on him. Kind of like Habib. If Habib chose... To fight for the next 5-10 to 10 years, he would be a long reigning champion because I don't see anybody beating him either. The fact that he's going to retire in his next fight, he's not going to be a long reigning champ. Volkanovski, nope. I don't see anybody in that featherweight division as of right now that's going to be a long reigning champ. I think they're all going to beat each other. I think it's going to be an extremely exciting division because of that. It's going to be almost like the light heavyweight division in the past. Volkanovski might lose to Korean Zombie, right? Korean Zombie might lose to, uh, I don't know, Max Holloway or Zabit or Kelvin Cater, you know? That guy might lose to the next. Like, it's going to be a very competitive division from now on. Same thing with the bantamweight division. Exactly the same thing. Petrion is the guy, if there's going to be a dominant champ, it's going to be Petrion. Because I don't see Aljamain Sterling holding it. I don't think Aljamain Sterling is going to beat Petrion. Dominic Cruz might be Petrion, who knows, but he'll lose to someone else. He might lose to Cody Garbrandt again, maybe a Marlon Marais. There's many fighters in that division that are just way too close in skill for one of them to just be a long-reigning champion at this point. It's why it's one of the best divisions in the UFC. Flyweight, maybe. If anybody's going to beat Davis Figueredo, it's only going to be for him getting tired and them dragging out the fight and not getting knocked out in the first two or three rounds. Amanda Nunes can be champion as long as she wants. Same deal with Valentina Shevchenko. I think Shevchenko might be the long reigning champion we've ever seen 
and I think she will break every single record. Most title wins, most title defenses, longest like 10-year streak, whatever it is. I think Shevchenko is going to be the greatest champion we've ever seen. Strawweight, I don't see any long-rating champion. Zhang Weili might be the one if it's going to be one, but Tatiana Suarez is there. Rose Namajunas is there. Ioana's still in the mix. Like, there's a lot of good fighters in that strawweight division. It's too competitive right now. If there's going to be a long-range champ, it's going to be Zhang Weili. Then we go to Yunjae, 49-64. Who are the best fighters in each division if all the fights were only one round? And the same goes for, for three rounds. I'll just do one round. It'll be too long to do three. D, Sam says, Weasel will cuck this answer. Heavyweight division, it's Francis Ngannou. If the UFC was ruled on only one round... I think Francis Ngannou would be the greatest fighter of all time. Would that be safe to say so? I think it'll be pretty accurate. Light heavyweight? I'm thinking either Thiago Santos or Dominic Reyes. Thiago Santos is very explosive. Right? If he lets off all of his cardio in that first round, it's going to be very hard for anybody to survive it. But Dominic Reyes is sharp. He's very technical. And he also can go really quick in the first round. So I'll say Dominic Reyes is the best first round fighter. Middleweight division, it's Yoel Romero. I mean, imagine telling Yoel Romero, hey, this fight is one round. Everything you got, you throw it out there. Nobody would survive. He has to pace himself. If it's only one round, five minutes, he could throw every flying in his toolbox he has. Flying, spinning back fists, somersault kicks. We're going to see crazy stuff, man, like a superhero out there just bouncing from cage to cage, attacking his opponent. In all honesty, it might be Yoel Romero, but it could be Adesanya. I think Adesanya did lose the first round against Yoel, so I'll say Yoel Romero. Welterweight. I think it's Kamar Usman, man. I don't think anybody can stop him in that first round. That's what they're going to have to do. They cannot ride out the whole first round. There's nobody that's going to be able to put the damage on him that quickly. He's too strong. He's too explosive. He's too good, man. He's just too good. Same thing at 155. Habib is probably the best first round fighter. Given how great Connor is, right? Given how great Justin Gaethje is for that first round. Connor couldn't beat Habib at all in that first round. I understand the whole thing about Conor McGregor not being in the best shape going into that fight but still man it wasn't even close that first round wasn't even close I understand Habib didn't really hurt him that much but he held him down for nearly the whole round so I'll say Habib but Connor, I would say is a very close second the featherweight division Zabit there is nobody in this division as good as Zabit in the first round I don't think anybody beats him in the first round other than just catching him with something wild that he didn't see Zabit is one of the best fighters in the UFC when it comes to the first round bantamweight division is Jose Aldo or Mala Marais Mala Marais did defeat Jose Aldo in that first round so it might be Mala Marais after him it's Jose Aldo I believe he beat Petrion in the first round if I'm not wrong right or was it the second I know he won the second because of the kicks and he changed his style for that if he kept that style in the first round, he would have beat Petrion in that first round for sure. But Malmarais head kicked Josie Aldo and won the round because of it. So it might be Malmarais. How dangerous that left high kick is. How dangerous and explosive he is. Flyweight is Davis Figueredo. Woman's bantamweight is Amanda Nunes. Woman's flyweight is Valentina Shevchenko. And woman's strawweight. Oh, that is a very tough one. It's between Tatiana Suarez, Rose Namajunas, and Zhang Weili. Rose has shown in the past that she can really explode and go hard in that first round and just put the foot on the gas, man. But we haven't seen too much of that from Zhang Weili outside of the Jessica Andrade fight, which he completely destroyed and tore her apart. But it seems like there was even more that Zhang Weili could have done. So I'll say Zhang Weili. Then we go to Kelspeth. How could one escape and get out of the Dagestani handcuff and their leg locks and leg rides? I would have to make a video to really get into it because I didn't do too much of an analysis of how to get out of it necessarily. Besides, okay, first, the Dagestani handcuff, you grab the wrist from around the back and the opponent's on their side. Now, what do you do when you're on your side and the guy's on top of you in this position and they have knee control? There's a few things you can do. First of all, you have to note this is a very dominant position. It's going to be very hard to get anywhere really safe from here right you're just gonna go from a nightmare position to just a bad position that's really what you want to go for you don't want to make a giant transition and try to just reverse everything that's going to take a lot of energy to do you can possibly do it of course and there's one way that i know you could probably do it but first if you explode hard enough turn hard enough into the opponent you could possibly work to get into half guard they're going to try to get the full mount but you're going to try to get into half guard, right? It becomes a chase for that position. And every time guys like Habib and Shemaev are quick enough and smart enough to get into the full mount before the opponent even realizes they can get the half guard. Now to explode and turn, you probably want to do it when you're posting up on the arm that they have the handcuff on, right? Because when you're posting up, now they focus on trying to break it down. On the way where they're trying to grab it with the other hand, 
that's where you could probably explode because you can you can surprise them with that sudden movement. This has happened a couple times against Habib and Shemaev, but they always got into like full mount or got the better position out of the transition. The other thing you could probably do is you could probably grab an underhook with the free arm that's closest to them, right? Not the one with the handcuff, the one that's right next to them. Dig that in for the underhook and drag them closer to your body so they can't necessarily land with devastating output, with devastating punches to your face, you know? And from there, you can possibly turn into them without sustaining the same kind of damage while doing it. And also, you can try to post up. It's going to be easier for them to break it down because now you made it closer for them to grab around you and break that post. This kind of does lock down the position a little bit more instead of allowing you to transition or to get out of it. Another thing you can do is you can try to get their body away from you or further away from you by elbow framing on the inside, pushing them away on the chest or the neck or the head, push them away with that arm that's close to them, the freeing arm. And what that does is it extends the arm that they have the handcuff with, right? And because it's extended, it's weaker. The grip is weaker. And also, from there, you can post a lot easier with that arm. Because the grip is so much weaker and because they cannot reach around you the same way to break that post down, right? They need both arms to break it down. They need to grab it with their other arm now and pull your arm in. They cannot do it as easily when their body is further away from the grip because now they got to reach all the way around you and your framing and it's just a lot to do so from there you can try to wall walk because always this position is against the cage you could try wall walking from here they can't break your post so they're gonna have to either follow you or relieve from the handcuff and try to change into another position but the biggest thing is when they follow you up to your feet or up to your knees or something they attempt a double leg or a single leg and drag you back down and this just further gasses you out but it leaves you to fight a little bit better right so that is another thing you could probably do that's something that i think Edson Barboza started to do with the habib where Habib lost a handcuff because of it, and he just started landing hands on him while hooking his legs around one of his own legs. When it comes to the leg rides, leg locks, and leg mount, whatever you want to call it, where Habib is kind of like sitting on your legs while you're sitting up against the cage, and now your legs are elevated above your hips, man, there's like nothing you can do from that. There's not much Habib can really do outside of trying to transition out of it, because he can't really land punches on you, he can't really damage you from that position that much. Unless he has a Dagestani handcuff while doing this, then you're in a worse position than ever before. But the traditional leg mount position, all it comes down to is what's going to happen next. That's really what it comes down to. And the last question we're going to go to, Hong Rui H. Farasahabi versus John Kavanaugh. Who wins in MMA? Farasahabi for sure. I mean, he's a legit, complete martial artist. Not only coach, watch him spar, man. Watch him move around with his fighters. It, I believe if he wanted to pursue a long MMA career, he would have done some amazing things, man. He's an amazing striker. Great on the ground as well. Switches stances very well. A lot of good feints. Takes off angles at a blink of an eye. I think he would dominate a fight with John Kavanaugh, to be honest. Joshua Wiggins says... No question, just want to say we appreciate all the content recently. Oh, thank you so much, man. That means a lot. So I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. And if you did, make sure to like, make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you're listening to audio version of this, remember my merch is available. If you guys want to check that out. And I'll see you guys in the next video.